My name is Tessa. Welcome to Part of the Planet, a podcast about a changing planet and what we are doing to manage that change. Thank you, Tessa. Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. This is a special home edition because as by now we're all well aware, we are dealing with a coronavirus that's become a major global pandemic and has caused huge disruptions in our daily lives. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to my regular co-host, Jason Smerden, who unfortunately can't join us for this episode. He's at home looking after his two kids. Um, he's also married to a doctor who is literally on the front lines here in New York City doing COVID-19 tests um, and working late night shifts at the hospitals. And so I wanted to make sure that I thanked her for um, the work that she's doing and to also to the, all the other essential workers throughout the city, the grocery store clerks, the transportation, the train conductors, the sanitation workers, everyone, really everyone who is essentially allowing fortunate people like me the opportunity to work from home um, and to do podcasts like this and to live the semblance of a normal life while uh, while they literally are putting their own lives at risk. So in Jason's stead, I'd like to introduce Andrew Revkin, who has a whole list, a whole resume of, of uh, accolades and achievements and designations, but most currently he is the director of the Initiative on Communications and Sustainability here at the Earth Institute. And I'm really happy to call him my colleague. Andy, how are you? Hanging in there. You know, these are definitely strange times, truly unprecedented. That's not kind of something you say frequently. Yeah, no. And I'm really happy that you could join us uh, for this podcast. And more specifically, what we're going to do with this particular one is air a sustain what broadcast that you did that you just started in, I guess, response or for this whole current condition that we're experiencing right now. Um, you've done a dozen or so, um, webinars. How, how would you describe them or they're, they're online video conversations with people trying to make sense of the current morass we're in, in which, uh, quite often there's too much information or there's too it's too hard to discriminate what the actual information you need is among all the noise around us. Right. The world has, the world has this new feature. It's the information environment that it's been there, you know, ever since there've been people talking to each other long distance, but now it's in overdrive and that's happening as we're sprinting through this period of global impacts and uh, including now nature's impacts on us through this global system we've created that can take a virus in November from some little interaction between species in a Chinese wet market to be a global, uh, you know, breakdown. Right. And this particular conversation you had with, um, Herman Daly, was it? And, uh, Kate, um, uh, the last name of uh, Rayworth. Rayworth. Yeah. I I was pronouncing it Rayworth, but she she corrected me. Um, what was that about? It was about, uh, the economics here. Uh, you know, we've had this model framed around growth uh, for Mm. a couple of centuries, basically. And 
you know, it's moved around the world. It's a very popular model. You know, China, everybody measures growth. And now we're uh, experiencing involuntary degrowth and 6 million jobs just uh, today announced on top of the 3 million lost uh, a week ago. The economy is an explosive, like implosive crisis. And the question among many uh, folks who think about sustainability is how do we go forward from here? We know right now we have to endure this and get people back to work as much as possible and restore institutions and the function of government and businesses. And some of that will feel old fashioned, but the question is, is there anything we should do now while several trillion dollars are going to be spent rebuilding things? Mm. If you're just rebuilding existing systems, norms, then that can lead us back into the whole sustainability race again. So the, the conversation was about that. And Herman Daly, you know, yeah. half a, half a century, he is, he is literally, the, yeah. as I called him the founding human. I started to say founding father, but in the idea of uh, steady state econ- economics, you know, how does that work? And Kate is kind of a disciple of his, and she had never met him face to face. Oh wow! So it was very exciting for Kate. She's in, in Oxford, and um, uh, she uh, she got to spend an hour and more with um, someone whose work is the foundation for her work. It was really cool. Yeah, no, I mean, and just taking a step back, it, <laughs> it's kind of really cool what you're doing. I guess bringing these people together. We, we already mentioned that we're in this global pandemic and these opportunities are are happening. What uh, led you to kind of think of it in in doing it this way or you're sort of <laughs> broadcasting, uh, getting these people together and, and approaching it in this respect? Yeah, it's just I, you know, when I was a reporter at The New York Times by the mid to, uh, mid aughts, I guess they're called, I, I was getting frustrated with the conventional way of doing journalism. You know, me writing a story for you after interviewing you, the world, I tell the world what's happening. Right. And around climate and these uh, big complicated, complicated issues, it's really hard to see how that can work. Um, so I started a blog, dot, dot Earth, in 2007. There was no one saying, hey, Andy, we need a sustainability blog. Mm-hmm. And I just have this like habit of looking around to see what tools can be used to fit the problem at hand. And the problem at hand right now is how do we remain cohesive and actually build more cohesion mm-hmm. while we're, while we're living in what I call a year of living distantly and um, hopefully just a year. And, and that for universities or whoever, you know, some of this hopefully will not go back. I think there's great upside to the connectedness we have globally to have, to be able to introduce Herman Daly in rural Virginia to Kate Rayworth, who's known his work for two decades, but has never met the man to, to make that connection online was great. And then some of our other episodes already have included people in the audience from Afghanistan and from mm. uh, South America and people online from around the world. So I'm just trying to build a global conversation. It's part of what we're doing here in a bigger way with Earth, Li- Earth Institute Live, you know, is how do we not only make the most of this, I, I don't want it to seem like a patchwork thing. Mm-hmm. For us, the Earth no, it's like laying the groundwork in, in a sense, right? Would you say it's, it, this is not a temporary patch toward getting back to just meeting face to face? I think yeah. there's so much, and you know, you're you're a wonderful online innovator yourself. So, what we can build forward here can actually do uh, the world a greater service than what we might have been doing in the, in the past. So, this is a good opportunity as well as a de- devastating problem right now. Yeah. So that leads me to a big question that I wanted to ask you. I'm saying this verbatim from a New York Times headline, although I have to admit, I did not read the article myself. The The headline said, is the internet bringing out the best in us? Uh, I don't know if you read that piece, but I'm just wondering what your uh, opinion is on that. <laughs> I think it can. Yeah. The internet is absolutely capable of bringing out the best of us. 
in this specific, in this situation we're kind of going oh, through right yeah. now. Oh yeah, um, and I had a guest on another uh, on Fridays. I've tended to focus this conversation on like just kicking back a little bit. And I had mm-hmm. a two weeks ago, I had a poet, a songwriter, I mean, a poet, a storyteller and a comedian, Chuck Nice, who's focused on climate change Okay, in a conversation about, you know, they're all people who've made their livings mostly <laughs> face-to-face with an audience where you can read the audience and, yeah. and how, what were they doing? And it was a great conversation. And the poet, Irene O'Garden said something that was just, whoops. Oh, sorry. It's okay. (laughs) This is what happens when we work from home. Yep. Oh, that's so wild. So Q, that's, um, my dad is 92 and had a horrible, um, last couple of weeks. He was in the hospital. I'm so sorry to hear that. When this all, he's, when this started erupting and he couldn't get back, he couldn't get back to the nursing home. So, because they they were in lockdown and now he's back there. Um, okay. and, and recuperating, but that's, it's just, and we've been, uh, there's an iPad, the, there's someone there who's been helping us connect with him visually, which is wonderful. Oh, okay. So that's like, that's part of the improv, you know, we're all, you, you know, it's not part of their job description at a nursing home to have been thinking about using an iPad to, so families could stay connected with their, their, um, relatives who are now in basically isolation, just so like an isolation ward in a, right. And, um, so we're all in that mode. I can't remember where we were at. Well, you, well we... you were talking a bit about the, the improv, I guess, and also the face to face interactions. Yeah. yeah. Oh or, man. Or the um, loss of face to face interaction. So we had this, uh, you know, not all of these discussions are high, high profile national security experts and the like I've had on, um, poets, song storytellers, songwriters are Sunday, every Sunday from 1030 to 1230, we do a sort of a song and story swap. Uh, but one of the poets the other day, she, she mused on, you know, there's a lot of negative terms for where we're at right now for obvious reasons, appropriate ones. She said she thinks we might be poised because we've been so spoiled in a way. We've, we haven't really used the internet yep. for what it could be used for. Mm-hmm. You know, we just use it to sort of uh, soothe ourselves with uh, distractions and, and uh, likes and stuff. And, or, or inflammatory stuff that gets us going. Right. And she says, she calls this a, the moment that could be an era called the great compassion. Mm. So I'm hoping that she's right. You know, but, And I think if we're not experimenting with these technologies in ways that foster the upside, of, then we're losing an opportunity and perhaps losing a big chunk of what we call civilization right now. Yeah. I, I was wondering if, if part of this was, uh, or if there was any worry that, that once things quiet down if uh, we're going to return to um a sort of place of normalcy that we that we were living through like before all this happened if what we kind of the lessons that we've taken from all this um, might enhance our ability to share and and talk to each other especially over a digital space or if even i mean one of the other things uh, maybe uh, i don't know if it's a drawback but i was thinking about if uh, some of this stuff might physically make us more distant in some ways or not. I mean, you, you, you look at technology and teenagers and, and, and the, you know, the, the arguments about how um, cell phones and all that kind of stuff uh, separate us yeah. and, and take away from less face-to-face time. So I was, yeah, I, I don't know if, uh, if that would enter your thoughts at all. Uh, I think it, it, a lot of it depends on awareness and a sort of a conscious use of the internet. 
and connectivity. The um, We're going to be in a hybrid world for sure going mm. forward. And we have to get up and brush our teeth. You can't do that virtually. <laughs> um, and yet um, we are always going to be using devices as long as we have technology and you know, if we don't blow up the internet completely. Uh, and that means, and I've seen manifest many examples of a wonderful hybrid approach where there's a teacher I've, I've written about for 10 years, um, University of Connecticut professor who adopted Twitter right after Twitter started. She her bird behavior class. She forced them to stop keeping a written journal of bird behavior. They witnessed as sort of a home a standing homework assignment mm. and they had to start tweeting about it, <laughs> tweeting about bird behavior. Is kind okay. of fun. <laughs> yeah. And they use the hashtag bird class and it, it's grown into a wonderful kind of outward facing learning experience that their learning is still chronicled. She still gets their homework mm. and it's all time time stamped. So, so, you know, she knows if they've done it or not. Yeah. And, uh, but the world is learning along with them. And that to me is just a great little example of, uh, you know, the upside of this stuff. And there, there are many, many, many others. Uh, and you're seeing it right now. Seamus Khan here, the chairman of sociology, mm-hmm. you know, he's a tenured professor. He doesn't have to really do much more than do what he does. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, when this thing was happening, he, he jumped into gear and he created I think it's called your, uh, it's called youth, youthremotelearning.com. Mm-hmm. And it's a portal where people who are stuck at home can teach courses for students who are stuck at home. Mm-hmm. And he's teaching a course on how to, for, for uh, secondary and primary students on how to be an ethnographer, how to go out into this changed world that we're facing right now, right. this profound historic moment and chronicle it in a way that will be useful to future generations. I just think, wow. That is so awesome. And he just kind of did it. <laughs> and the, that couldn't have, been, couldn't have been done in that way 20 years ago or even five years ago, really. So yeah, we're surrounded by upside examples. And that's what excites me every day. Yeah, no, I mean, my wife is a, is a teacher. Um, she's a reading specialist for K through four. And, and we're now nightly after our daughter goes to sleep, uh, doing five minute clips of her lessons that can be broadcast to her students. And and um, yeah, I think I think our takeaway is these shocks to our system on an individual level. Um, yeah, take advantage of them and 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 use them to uh, to to sort of shake up your routine, right? And and um, right. and understand that there are other ways to to kind of achieve our goals. And um, yeah, ho- uh, hopefully we can build on those and and maybe shake the entire system in, in the process as well. And that's boy, boy, oh boy, that's what's happening right now. You know, for yeah. better or worse, the world has been deeply shaken. And I think maybe awakened to some, some things that have lain dormant for a long time. This is not like, as you know, and as everyone in our virology groups here knows, this was hardly unexpected. Right. Uh, we were, and I think now maybe hopefully there'll be some serious attention <laughs> to some of our norms. We'll see. Let's we'll hope. See. So I want to get into your interview um, and this isn't going to be the last time we speak. You'll check yeah, yeah, yeah. in on oh, a regular no, basis. We'll do this uh, more often. I'm happy to be on as much as it helps out. Okay. Well, Andy, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining Pot of the Planet. I will speak to you soon. Thanks and stay safe. Okay. Hi, this is Andy Revkin. I um, am the founding director of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Earth Institute. And it's a privilege and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun today to talk with Herman Daly, one of the founding fathers, one of the founding humans of um, steady state economics, and Kate Raworth, uh, who's uh, 
in Oxford and is a uh, an economist from a new generation uh, charting paths to balancing human ambitions and activities with the limits of living on a finite planet. As as you as many of you know, I ran a blog at the New York Times for nine years called Dot Earth, and that was the framing question: How do you fit uh, nine billion people as we will soon be on a finite planet, and uh, how do you spread well-being? How do you limit risk? Um, and to to us and to the na- nature around us, the the non-human nature. And here we are now in the midst of the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, long predicted by many, long ignored by our systems. So I thought it would be really useful to have a conversation with uh, two people thinking deeply, in one case for half a century, about how we can uh, do a little better than we have been. Uh, you know, there's a brittleness to our structures um, that's really been revealed in a profound way right now. Um, uh, Herman, I'd, I'd love to start with you and just get your sense, first of all, for each of you, I'll ask you, you know, where in the world are you? And just give a quick sense of how this um, uh, epidemic has shaped conditions for you right right now. So Herman, maybe give a hello from Virginia and um, let us know how you're doing there. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'm in uh, Midlothian, Virginia in a retirement home. My wife and I have lived here now for four years. So um, we're not able to get out, of course, uh, like everyone else in Virginia and Maryland, we're sort of on a stay-at-home order, except for very highly necessary trips. And uh, we go to the to the pharmacy, maybe, and to the uh, grocery store, but uh, even that is, is rather limited. So that's about where we are. So it's a good time to think and sit around and talk to people. And what's uh, been that, like, what's the top line thing when you wake up in the morning um, after figuring out breakfast and like, you know, what aspect of this resonates most powerfully with the way you've been thinking about the world? Well, I suppose, um, you know, I think of economics as a life science. And uh, basically, the economy is a subsystem of the of the ecosphere. And largely in ecological economics, we've been trying to uh, make that fit better and to recognize all of the life support systems that we receive from the uh, biosphere and and to not damage them. Now we have to think a little bit more about the disservices that we receive from the larger ecosystem and how to protect ourselves against them. These random changes in, in something is insignificant as a, as a virus in China or anywhere else uh, roils the stock market and, and brings a shutdown to, uh, to life. So that's rather an enormous change in, in the interdependence in the world, uh, which, well, I think we've not paid sufficient attention to. Yeah. Um, I'm going to broaden the picture here and, and, that that issue, you know, I, I was looking back. We rewatched the film Contagion, which had a lot of expert support and uh, how it was written, and rereading um, some of the predictive literature about pandemic impacts and the the economic, the complete shutdown that's required here to um, stall the virus so long enough to control it eventually didn't seem to be adequately uh, foreseen. Uh, maybe you and Kate could th- could talk a little bit about 
that. Is this is the profoundness of how this has shocked the system? Does it feel unsurprising to you or, or did it take uh, you by surprise too? Well, I'll just mention what I think we've sort of set ourselves up for such a thing with uh, globalization and the, the long uh, supply lines coupled with uh, just-in-time inventories and just-in-time research, just-in-time learning. Everything is stretched thin to maximize uh, current profits. And uh, so, and then, and then globalization, we have interdependence of, through so-called free trade, free capital mobility, increasingly free migration or uncontrolled. And so all of this seems to me to be something that uh, the viruses will just say, well, thank you very much. Uh, you've made it easy for us. And, uh, and I think we have inadvertently. Yeah. And then there's this human trait that you've seen kick in almost all the way along the chain from China in the very earliest days. Local officials uh, were, were not eager to share bad news up the chain. And um, that you see, uh, there's been a lot of reporting at every stage. There's been some issues where the, the human element impeded rapid um, uh, transmission of the knowledge that could have been made, made this a little better. And of course, here in the United States, it's been a bit of a nightmare with disinformation, misinformation, uh, uh, what someone today was calling on NPR an infodemic, <laughs> paralleling mm -hmm. the pandemic. So Kate, <laughs> Kate in, um, in England, uh, there's been, well, everything from Boris Johnson testing positive to whatever your local situation is. Could you give us just a quick snapshot of how you're, you know, what your community and your family are, how you're dealing with this? And then we can, you can weigh in a little bit on this concept of, how it relates to economic thinking. Yeah, sure. So I, I live in Oxford. I moved here in 2001 to work for Oxfam. It became my home. I'm still here. Um, I have 11-year-old twins. So the biggest immediate shift in my life is I can't go and visit my parents anymore who live in London. And I'm homeschooling. My partner and I are both here, of course, and we are homeschooling our children. So, And my work life is as busy, more busy than ever, desperately working to set up a digital platform so that collaborators around the world can work with us on putting the tools of donut economics into action. So we're working incredibly hard because of this context. And I'm pulled away every day for several hours to go and homeschool my kids. I live in a street in Oxford that never actually had a community. I didn't really know beyond one or two doors either way who was there. And I've always felt really bereft about that, actually. And now we have a WhatsApp group and there is phenomenal community. You're talking about the human traits. I mean, as well as the disinformation and the delay, there is the phenomenal jumping into action and the joy in rediscovering local community people, helping each other, looking out for each other, making jokes. And that for me has been a very positive side. But the combination of working harder than I've ever worked, homeschooling my kids and being part of the community it's, it reminds me of actually gender theory that I learned when I was at Oxfam of the, what they called you know, the triple burden of, of women's lives. And it's actually not women's lives. It's the caring life of the household, which is to do your work or earn an income, to care for the family and participate in the community. So I feel huge strictures on my time. I, when I wake up in the morning, I'm just into a timetable of moving between those three things. So that's what I'm immediately feeling here. Yeah, that this issue of um, trying to fit the strictures 
that are required here to get this under control into daily life is so profound. And I've just been uh, reading and connecting, tweeting significantly about the unrealistic expectations in developing countries where um, there's uh, there's been a lot of pushback uh, from folks in uh, India, for example, uh, saying that uh, social distancing is a privilege, that only those of us who have roofs and uh, don't have to walk 100 meters to a well to get the water just to drink, let alone to wash our hands, are, are just immensely privileged. And, and and when you think about uh, Modi's effort to shut down India, 1.3 billion people, not to mention uh, what's happening in Africa shortly, it, it's a profound sense of the world facing um, a multidimensional reality, which actually reflects economics in so many ways, too. There's no one economics uh, situation. And uh, and how, how do you square that with whether it's climate or these other global challenges is really hard um kate you had on on that andy because people talk about social distancing but actually what it really is is physical distancing exactly Mm -hmm. and and so we desperately try to remain social and people who are privileged to have technologies like the ones we have can do it like this and as you're talking many millions of people billions of people do not have these but the point you just made is really interesting that if you have in your home running water and um a cooking stove and entertainment like a tv you can physical distance and still enjoy the necessities of life but in many countries people don't have that in their home it's a public service or it's in a public shared common space so just as you said you have to go to the well i'd not thought of that point i think it was a really great point that in, in communities where actually there's a lot of commons and communally shared resources collecting firewood going to the well um even communal TV watching sometimes in the village square, all of that, because of physical distancing, a lot of the necessities right. can't be provisioned for. I think that's a really important point. And it also says that we're in for a wave of disease that's really going yeah. to be a terrible. It, it, it reminds me, but it's actually even more extreme than the pieces I wrote back in 2007 on what we call the climate divide, you know, that the impacts of climate change and uh, whether you're rich or poor uh, are enormously different. Um, and of course, the culpability question of, you know, who's emitting most of the greenhouse gases. And yesterday, actually, it was my son in Los Angeles who was saying, you know, here's a disease that was spread by the rich, meaning through transit and commerce and is mostly going to impact the poor uh, through the, that these issues we just described. Is this a moment for for a for an expanded opportunity to to shape things in a new way. And Herman, I know we had the same discussion back uh, in the Great Recession. Or are we still, is this a blip in what's still a long journey to reframing of how we measure progress and the like? Well, uh, just thinking of it in in more concrete terms here, we've just had the uh, Democratic primary elections that have been interrupted. But it seems to me that that uh, the ideas that were discussed in those debates, uh, three of them have really come to the prominence, come to prominence in view of the current situation. I mean, I think uh, it's become clear that Bernie Sanders' idea of, uh, or many people's idea of uh, universal health care, single-payer health care, that's, I think, harder to argue against now than it was before. Uh, also, I think Andrew Yang in the universal basic income notion, which seems like we've in, enacted 
already Congress in, in great haste enacted a, a kind of a version of that, a temporary and reduced version of such a thing. And then um, Elizabeth Warren's emphasis on the wealth tax, I think uh, I think that has gained a lot of prominence in view of the fact that um, what you, we've just been discussing, the tremendous inequalities, inequities in our country and the fact that the the burdens are going to fall so much on on the lower class, the working class. They've just been disemployed in mass, and we've we've um, and we've basically. This is a question I raise for others to think about too. Uh, we seem to have put the brakes on the real economy in order to avoid contagion, to to be physically isolated, stay at home. At the same time, we're opening the spigot for the monetary economy to giving the Fed and the banks just, you know, come on, put the money through. And uh, why is that going to be inflationary? Well, I kind of think it will be, uh, or at least I don't understand why it won't be. And um, that may give some further impetus to the idea of of the wealth tax, let's Let's uh, turn, put on the. Let's get some of that money out of the system uh, through a wealth tax and redistribute to help finance uh, what we're what we're spending at the lower end. Uh, so those are things that I think might be consequences politically and economically in the short run in the United States uh, of this. I'd be interested in what other people think about that. I, that's just off the top of my head. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there was a conversation on Friday that uh, a colleague did as part of a resilience journalism training we're just starting to do. Uh, Dale Willman had Nate Hagens from the Post Carbon Institute on with others, uh, John Erickson and uh, Juliet Shore. And they all agreed in a way they weren't they were saying this is an emergency moment where um, uh, Nate put it pretty crisply. you have to do it all. You've got to get basic income to people and you've got to, you do have to stimulate or save businesses at the same time. Now, whether, what strategy you use to do that one. And then he, and he's, then he backed away and said that the bigger challenge will then emerge later, but we're really in a complete, Juliet Shore said the economy, this isn't a recession. It, it's a, it's a stoppage. It's yeah. a very, it's a very different kind of thing. Yeah, very different. Very different. It's, it's uh, you just stopped producing for an, an independent reason to control the contagion. It wasn't mm-hmm. a, a slowdown or a, so. That's very different. Can I jump in there and yeah, say? Yeah, I was just going to say, Kate. Uh, yeah, yeah, this this point Herman's bringing up about the difference between the productive economy and the what he was calling the monetary economy. So I can't resist playing with toys. Okay, so I've got this hose pipe that right now I'm going to say this symbolizes. The circular flow of goods and services through the productive economy. So somebody sells coffee in a cafe and then they use that money to go to a yoga lesson. They buy some food. They buy uh, some health care. They pay for some education. So uh, delivery service by clothing. So things going round and round the economy. Now, just to recognize the landmark uh, insight Herman had, apologies for this fern, just taking a bit of natural capital here from my fern. Uh, nature goes into this pipe, okay? This is not a self-sustaining pipe. So let's just recognize that the economy uses natural resources. But what I'm trying to distinguish here is the productive economy of people who depend on salaries, paying for each other's salaries mm-hmm. every time they spend money. 
that's part of the economy. But I'm going to say there's a bit of payments that are coming out of it, and I'm going to use my little kitchen funnel here, that are going over here. These payments are being siphoned off. Where are they going? They're going for rent. They're going for uh, mortgages. And they're going for debt. So it's the financial and the real estate sector who have the right to produce money as credit that bears interest. It's the rentier landlord. It's the rentier economy that's extracting a rent permanently. And this crisis, for me, is highlighting the difference in people's source of income between those who depend upon this flow of income between salaries and incomes and then those who are extracting a rent. And what the virus has done through physical distancing is shut this down. You yeah. cannot yeah. circulate. But what is happening here? Are these rents being stopped or are they still being extracted? And the most, ex the most um, striking and different measures that I hear of are, are when governments are actually saying we need a rent freeze. We need uh, interest-free loans because that means we're beginning to break the presumption that rent can always be collected, that extraction has the first right on capital. And that, to me, is one of the most um, valuable insights that we're getting now because we can suddenly see the difference between the productive economy and the extractive economy. And let's see it and learn yeah. from it and change it. So that's that's the question, Kate, though. I want to ask you a little more to dig in. Is there anything about this moment yet or what you might anticipate that gives you confidence that we can avoid over-focusing on that, what Nate Hagens was describing, meaning getting things going, which we know is essentially sustaining the existing pathways and norms, and getting someone to really pay attention to how how to reframe this. I just saw last week, I think OECD was blogging that this is going to make the Marshall Plan look small, you know, the, the, the globally in terms of how much money is going to flow. And when I write about climate, climate adaptation, for example, there's always this tendency to invest climate adaptation finance in, in the things we already know, like building storm barriers, whether or not they're logical or correct. So do you really, what's your sense of what, what it would take to actually have whoever need, who is it who needs to know and what can change their full stop new thing possibility? So, as people always say, never let a good crisis go to waste. But yeah. uh, there's always at least two camps with that in mind, right? And there's business as usual, which when it gets collapsed by crisis, wants to resurrect itself and actually build back stronger, more powerful and more advantageous. And Naomi Klein did a brilliant uh, job of documenting that in the shock doctrine. And then there's the other team, which is saying, hang on, we have a vision of a completely different future that we already know we want. And mm -hmm. we can't let this crisis go to waste. And many people right. say that the financial crisis was not capitalized upon because the ideas weren't ready, right? And, and mm -hmm. they weren't brought together. Have we done our homework since 2008? Have we started mm -hmm. assembling those ideas so that they are ready? And I would say, actually, I think what part of what's going to determine which way that goes is the big framing ideas, the paradigms that we steer ourselves by, the metaphors we hold in our minds, the pictures we draw for ourselves. And that's why, to be honest, it's a huge privilege for me to be in this conversation with Herman. We've never met before, uh, but his work has influenced my thinking for decades. And I trained as an economist back in the 1990s, and it's only thanks to, and I walked away from it because I thought this mindset is so limited. I'm deeply frustrated. How can we call the death of the living world an externality? That is absurd. And it was only when I picked up this book, Beyond Growth by Herman in the early 2000s, 
I read it while I was actually doing jury service. So I was going in and out of a court case and while sitting in between that, my brain was turning circles because it had in it concepts and diagrams that I had never been taught. And that set me on the path saying, right, I actually want to be an economist now because I want to help make this economy happen. And you don't just get to make it happen. You have to find moments, cracks or great fissures in the system like this one when we can bring these ideas, which actually have been around for decades, yeah. and bring back those images. So I would love to share some of the images, uh, the, yeah. the one that Herman drew, uh, that I think so powerfully helps us reframe the paradigm. Um, and I'll let Herman speak to this, but this diagram, once I'd seen it, there's no going back from this image. Once you see it and you get it, and economics can't just put it back in the box. Can you talk it through a little bit, Herman? Um, sure. Maybe there's some children watching this program since they're all out of school, and I'll talk to them in, 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 about this. You know, you probably remember in school they used to give you uh, little puzzle books, and uh, one of the puzzles was always a picture, and the the question would be, what's wrong with this picture? And the picture usually would be pretty reasonable, everything looked pretty right, but there was something wrong and you had to sit there and think and think and figure out what was wrong with the picture. Well, I've been using this picture as an as a way of of emphasizing the um, um, another picture, the, the faults of another picture, which was the basic circular flow diagram on the first pages of every textbook, where this, you know, you just go around and around. And there's no inputs from nature and no outputs of waste back to nature and so forth. So this was an idea to look at the at the economy in its physical dimensions, respecting the first and second laws of thermodynamics and not contradicting them and, and not making it look like a perpetual motion machine. Well, I've used that. To make that point over and over, I mean, that diagram is probably 40 years old, and I use it for 20 years teaching. And then one day in class, I guess I was feeling especially uh, unusually self-critical. And so I asked the class, what's wrong with this picture? And so we puzzled over it for a while, and it became, after a while, I won't go into all the false leads, but... You know, if you look at just that empty world diagram, what is the final product of the economic system in that picture? What is the what is the end product of everything? Well, it's waste matter and waste energy, and that's it. Right. So the economy is an idiotic system for taking useful matter and energy and grinding it up and converting it into waste matter and energy. That's the physical picture of the economy. So to make sense out of it, you really have to escape from just physical dimensions. And so our what was wrong with the picture is that it it stayed within the physical world. It did not go into a world of experience or sentience or um, uh, welfare or enjoyment of life. So the whole purpose of grinding up all those useful things into waste is that we have to do that to enjoy life. We are we are uh, what the physicists call dissipative systems, and all of our wealth is a dissipative system. So 
we have to compensate for the this dissipation and and uh, and that's the physical part but so how did we correct this picture the correction i'd like to make to this picture which actually we've already made it josh farley and i in our textbook uh, you know made it is to draw uh, just to, on the outside of the circle to put welfare and then we have two sources of welfare, one directly from the economy, an arrow from the economy to welfare outside the circle. And uh, that, uh, and then another arrow from the ecosystem, the natural capital, directly to welfare. So we get welfare directly from natural capital. We get directly from uh, economic um, man-made capital. Well, as we as the economy grows, then the arrow representing uh, economic services contributing to welfare that gets bigger and bigger, and the arrow representing the direct ecosystem services to welfare gets smaller and smaller because the economy crowds out the ecosystem. So that's what really gives an economic dimension to this picture is that you have two sources of welfare, uh, the ecosystem services and purely economic services. What we're interested in as economists is, is the sum of the two. It's the total welfare. So we want, uh, we want that size of the economy such that the sum of the services from the from the economy plus the services from the ecosystem is a maximum, and that's um, that's what gives an e- an economic dimension. So you, we can go on from there, on and on and yeah, on. Yeah. Right. So, so is being wonderfully self-critical and pointing out what's missing from his diagram. But let me say that myself, as somebody who graduated, oh, flip back to her. Somebody who had graduated from economics, and I know I did a master's in development economics, but this was absolute seismic mind-shifting stuff. Because in mainstream economics, they say, welcome to economics. It's the literally means the art of managing the household. And on day one, you learn supply and demand. You just dive straight into the market. And it's not bounded by anything but what we call externalities. And when you start here, one, He's drawn the economy as a subset of the living world. And that changes everything. And Herman has a wonderful story about trying to convince the World Bank in their 1992 report to, to, to draw the box of the economy inside a circle. And it, it dis, uh, disturbed them so much, they eventually just took the diagram out because it was such a radical shift. I mean, this is the most radical move you can make in economics to put the economy within a living system and treat it as a bounded system. But the well, second- that, that was, uh, I'm glad to hear that. That was my thought. That's what happened to me. And uh, I'm glad it happens to other people too. Oh my goodness! It yeah. happened to the World Bank because we went, <laughs> we went over and over, and they uh, I tried and tried to to get, and I was simply told that's not the right way to look at it. That's not the right way to look at it. And you know, if you look at it that way, it threatens the World Bank and many economists, including me, earlier with a question which you know, you don't want, you can't deal with. Uh, if this is a true picture, then the economy is constrained by a larger system. It cannot grow beyond the boundaries of the larger system. 
Mm-hmm. You can develop qualitatively, you can improve, you can have better morals, you can have better technology, but you can't keep growing. And and uh, that was what the World Bank was is still is devoted to. And so and so for that reason, it just ha- it just could not be a part of the World Development Report. It had to be dropped. And, and that's how you know you're changing paradigms when people are so threatened by a mere circle. That's when you know you're on paradigm shift. And if I can say the second thing for me that is so shifting and p- profound about this is that beautiful contrast between empty world and full world. And Herman's always very generous saying, well, in empty world, maybe it was okay. Maybe it's okay to just sort of uh, not take so much notice of the living world because it always seemed to be so expansive. There was always so much more atmosphere, so much more land. And that sort of generosity of spirit to the founding fathers that maybe they, you know, maybe they could ignore it. Although of course, through colonialism yeah. and, 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 um, mm-hmm reliance on the unpaid care economy they couldn't but then come to full world and say how would you know when that square of the economy was banging into the edges of you how would you know and how would you be able to describe that circle of ecosystem i mean when when i first saw this it was it's a concept it's the carrying capacity the ecosystem is drawn as a circle and the the seismic moment again for me came in 2010 I had just come back from maternity leave. I was sitting at my desk in Oxfam and somebody was running by me all the big ideas that had happened in the, in the previous year. And if you flip to the next slide, Andy, um, it was the planetary boundaries diagram. The Earth System scientists at Stockholm Resilience Center and all over the world had come yeah. up with nine planetary boundaries. There's nine life-supporting systems within which humanity must live. And, and they had quantified it. And they said on, on climate change, it's 350 parts per million. And so that's the outside the donut. And when I saw that, it was like that is the quantification of Herman Daly's circle. We are now moving somewhere. We've got metrics. We don't have to do everything in the in the metric of money. We've got alternatives. And I felt like this was the most massive uh, challenge to the mainstream of economics that everything had to be quantified in monetary terms. Actually, here we can do it in natural metrics. And I added the inner boundaries. If there are outer boundaries of pressure on the planet, there are inner boundaries on the pressure of individual lives. And my goodness, mm-hmm. we feel that now. So for me, this was the most um, crucial diagram that helped me start moving in this direction and draw the donut and really give a, give a sort of, and keep alive the ecological economics in, in its evolving new diagrams that help people see things in new ways. So thank yeah. you. I think that's a real step forward because it disaggregates the 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 big picture into into a lot of pieces and gives the physical dimensions to them, and it add, as you say it adds that inner boundary too, uh, which was was absent from the original picture. A little bit taken up with the with introducing welfare, but still this is much more disaggregated and specific. So that's a, that's a nice uh, a really uh, step forward. And if we jump in this picture just briefly to use it, I mean, the the idea of it is it's about meeting the needs of all people within the means of the planet. Leave nobody falling short in the hole in the middle, but don't overshoot planetary boundaries. We can start to tell the story of what we're experiencing in this pandemic now. It starts with the pressure of human systems, that expansionist growth-based human economy. We're continually pushing into nature spaces and we get these zoonotic diseases like Zika, like SARS, like Ebola, like coronavirus. So biodiversity loss 
And uh, as, as uh, Herman said, there are disservices that happen when we push too much and create some, such a threat to the wild spaces. We get a massive hit on human health. And that immediately now in this crisis has had a hit on incomes and work and on, on social networks, on people's ability to meet of communities. Suddenly people who live in high income countries, rich cities like this one in Oxford, you go in the supermarket, there's no food on some of the shelves. People who never imagined that they would not be able to buy food in the shops are suddenly experiencing what people experience in low-income countries every day. So there's something very equalizing about realizing that we're all vulnerable to the knock-on effects of pandemics. Right. There, there is. I want to show this uh, from Twitter. Um, uh, Bill Bow. There, and actually, there's a couple of comments. A lot of comments have come in that I'd like to try to scroll through in a minute. Um, but one thing that Bill has said here. Um, in looking at the great flatten the curve uh, graphs that have gone around, some of which actually date back to the 1918 epidemic. There was actually this understanding was was uh, emerged then. Uh, what you see there that is a little harder to um, capture in uh, the more this dimensional graph is, is to the temporal element. You know, we're in a surge and there's a shape to human activity right now. This sort of a, a conversation I had last week with um, Deborah Brosnan, who's a disaster risk uh, expert, was that uh, uh, resilience is is a is a is a an activity. It's a process. It's a it's it's a tie has a time dimension to it. So um, the question here was: uh, Is this graph of healthcare system capacity might this help raise awareness that ecological ceilings and social foundations uh, apply across the board? It was kind of interesting. See that come up. I don't know if you could both quickly weigh in on on having that dimensionality to it as well. I'll Fine. jump in and say the obvious, and then Herman can elaborate on it. Herman created the three uh, conditions for sustainability many decades ago. One, extract Earth's renewable resources no faster than Earth can gen regenerate them. Two, dump pollutions and wastes in Earth's sinks no faster than Earth can assim um, assimilate them or make them harmless. And three, use non-renewable resources no faster than we can find substitutes. And, and what I see here is uh, an absolute equivalent. Four, allow infection and pandemic to, or allow, allow a virus to spread no faster than humanity has created the capacity to deal with it. So what this curve does, it doesn't say, oh, we'll make sure nobody gets the virus. Right. Most people are going to get this virus, yeah. but manage it within the carrying capacity. And of course, we can't change Earth's carrying capacity. We can reduce it, but we can't increase nature's generosity. We can increase the capacity of our health systems. And many countries have systematically underinvested in them uh, for decades. And so that capacity is much lower than it could be. And maybe that's one of the big changes that's going to happen. But I'll, I'll love to hear what Herman sees on that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess my thinking, um, you, you triggered it earlier when you talked about India and, and the Modi's uh, rule that everyone goes back to their village. And then I saw on the, on the news all these people crowding into, into buses and trains and, and trying to get back and not having a place to right. stay. And, and so, it, it, you know, economics is uh, the first rule of economics is uh, count the cost. The cost in India, you know, is is yeah. the lockdown thing. Now you, you've got this devastating threat of the of a widespread pandemic in India, 
And then the the cure, partial cure that we seem to see is the lockdown, isolate, but then that practically destroys the the low level of livelihood of people who are barely getting by already. And so I I'm really puzzled with with this fundamental question of of um, counting the costs in this situation and how and at what point do you say well it's um, we'll we'll just have to let the virus go for a while because we have to stay alive by by working and at what point do you say well no the virus is so deadly we're just going to have to risk upsetting everybody's life and starvation. So yeah. that's um, that's just an expression of personal angst, I guess, or, or yeah. professional incapacity to, to give a good answer. Yeah, I, I tell you, I've been talking to a lot of people in India, in the Himalayas, elsewhere, by, you know, electronically. Um, and I don't think there is an easy answer at the moment, except to understand that in the long run, systems have to be... Um, shaped in ways that boost capacity on the ground for resilience. Um, and that means basic provisions, basic capacity yeah. to endure a hazard. Uh, yeah. There's so much that I've learned. Sorry, Herman. I was just going to say part of resilience here seems to be to be, uh, to be immunity, uh, developing immunity in this concept of, of a herd immunity and how soon that could be developed. And, uh, and, you know, whether that's, uh, I mean, that's, reasonable as a statistical statement of probabilities that happens during a during a, a pandemic, whether it, it translates into a policy is a big moral question. Well, then it's interesting because that was my next question for both of you is um, from models to policy. I, I've been talking to um, more than a few people about this very thing the last week or two on this new program that, 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 that I launched this video series as a way to ask a lot of people to dig in on, well, how do we have actionable, actionable pathways? And I've had two different people who were former members of the National Security Council here on the show. And, and um, one thing that I'm going to do another program on came up when um, Rod Schoonover, who was a National Intelligence Council analyst, environmental uh, scientist, uh, he said, you know, we had this all in our, they're the threat analyses for four or five years from the intelligence community in the United States said pandemic, pandemic. Um, but it, as he put it, it was on page 21. And, you know, that's, and it gets at this issue, all these competing um, priorities, you know, energy security, climate. And yeah, and as a journalist, I said, on that's on that's the webcast, you know, even as a journalist, I, I kind of write about these things. And it's almost like I've inoculated myself. You know, I've written about pandemic. I've written about mega earthquakes. I've written about these things. But then, how do what is what are the action points that can really make that resilience argument embed in development plans and investments and um, education? What does that look like? I'll jump in. So when so resilience is coming up a lot, and and it's a word that's. Uh, we're going to use a lot more. And I think it's really important to think about different kinds of resilience. So I'm going to just distinguish between two kinds. And the one I would call it sounds like deal with it resilience. Uh, Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, about a month ago, he said, well, perhaps as a, way, a nation, we'll just sort of let it, sort of a wave of the virus go through the country and we'll sort of take it on the chin, he said. 
that is the kind of archetype, you know, just deal with it. And, and that puts the onus of resilience on the individual or in the household. And by the way, right. we can't cope with it. And by the way, it turns out the national health system definitely can't cope with it. But what that accepts is we live in a world that's prone to shocks. There are going to be global uh, financial crises, climate crises, health crises. And so just take it on the chin and deal with it. And that pushes the resilience to the level of individuals. And in a world of extraordinary inequality, millions of people suffer appallingly as a result. There is a very different kind of resilience, which I would say, let's call it design for it resilience. And we're not talking about the individual having the responsibility to be resilient in the face of inevitable shock. It's about saying, why are we prone to so many shocks? And I, I really want to pull back and take a global view. It's because we have this expansionist human project of endless economic growth, which means that the, the normal the normal process, and indeed the, the assumed success of an economy, is expanding endlessly. And when we do that, what a surprise, we end up with, with financial crisis, we end up with a climate crisis, we end up with this health crisis, they have common roots at a deep paradigm of expansionism. So I think we and also deep global connectedness. I think we've just been through peak connection in July last year, there were 230,000 flights that took off on one day. Wow, I think we need a resilient system and that means we need to look at our economic systems as a whole, come shrink that square in Herman's circle, come back within planetary boundaries. So first of all, let's not kick off all these ecological shocks, but let's make far more resilient human systems. Let's be regenerative, but have far more distributive economies that don't siphon off wealth into the hands of a 1%, but share wealth far more equitably so that communities, when they are faced with shocks, have a more local resilience to turn to. So I want to make sure we don't go for deal with it resilience. We build design for it resilience. And that's a much bigger global question. Totally. Um, And, uh, you know, yes. Uh, By the way, I don't know if you can see, I've tried to rejigger my screen. So there's so many good comments that came in. Can you guys see what's on the left side there? There, uh, um, It's too small to read. Yeah, I'll I'll try to read off a few of them because there are too many for everyone to answer. Um, let me just go up here. Uh, there were a couple of here. Oh, here's Salim Ali, who's a he was on this program a few days ago. The main disagreement is that conventional economics assumes uh, good feedback between economic and ecological systems, focuses on measurability, and using economic system as a proxy for ecological systems. Ecological economics challenges the efficiency of the feedback loops. I guess um, that one thing that's interesting there is that idea of do we have to pull back a little bit from measurement? Does that? I could explain a little more of what I mean. Are we be, are we too? Um, are we thinking too yeah. seeking too much clarity or too much quantifiability? Yeah. I think there's a problem in economics. I, I'm, all, I'm all in favor of empiricism, but some things are sort of clear. You know, as some of you, if you jump out of an airplane, you know, what you really need is a parachute, not an altimeter, you know. <laughs> right. It's nice to crack your fall. But yeah, I think, right. you know, first principles are sufficient to know the basic direction in which we have to move. And I get I get impatient sometimes with the, with the uh, 
you know, well, you know, is it optimal? Uh, can we, how do we measure it? And so forth. You know, after a while, you just accept that gravity exists and you don't measure the fall of every apple. You know, you just take right. it and, and go from there. I think we're at that point. I think we we know enough to, to constrain growth. And I can't resist uh, the opportunity to ask Kate Rayworth a question. I mean, she's... I'm sort of, I sort of represent the past. She represents the future. <laughs> and I, I've been hoping that more people would, uh, you know, have the same kinds of uh, reactions that she has had. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little, since I'm retired now, I don't, I'm not teaching and I don't have as much contact. Uh, but are, are there are there colleagues your and your generation who are thinking like you and have had similar epiphanies, you might say, uh, that you have had, and who, and who have had the courage to go to go with it? I mean, I I would like to have been a fly on the wall in your tutorials with uh, Wilfred Beckerman, you know. <laughs> I can, I, so it took it took a certain independence of mind and spirit to to do what you have done. How many people do you see in in among your classmates that are doing that? Oh, Wilfred Beckerman. So Wilfred Beckerman wrote a, a, a book in 1973 called "In Defense of Economic Growth." It was a response to the Limits to Growth report, yeah. and he was my tutor. He's also a very dear friend of mine now. Ninety-one. He's a very nice man. Um, but I don't think he's ever quite forgiven me for disagreeing with him. Um, you'll be glad to know, Herman, that you, and you know that you have created the most important form of economics in decades, which is ecological economics. And there are millions of people around the world who, when they find it, they say, yes, this makes sense to me. I always thought there was something wrong with me because economics didn't make sense. Now I've found this, I realize it wasn't me, it was the economics. <laughs> so this makes sense to people. And it's had huge influence. And in, in all the rethinking economics movements and all the movements being led by young people in universities, this is right up there. But it's not on the curriculum. So when you arrive at university, still today, and I've sat in in classes mm -hmm. in, in universities, Welcome to economics. Here is the market. Let's learn how markets work. Then we can talk right. about the market and the state. And then let's talk about externalities. The thing that's missing is that the students are not even taught that this is a worldview. So there's not even, you don't even have an awareness that there's another way of thinking. And that's why students in the rethinking economics movement are calling for pluralism. Respect our minds and teach us the plurality of ways of understanding. And perhaps we'll choose the paradigm that makes the most sense to us. But I think that these ideas are having more and more traction, thank goodness, if, if nothing else, from these kinds of climate and ecological crises and health crises, that people say, where is a form of economics that actually has the capacity to hold this? They find it in these ideas. Well, um, like, I'm going to show you, let me just quickly show you, there's a question that came in that's pretty sure. relevant. Um, Harry, Harry Flint says, I'm studying at NMSC uh, Ecological Economics hopefully next September, and was wondering if you have any suggestions or advice for, of institutions in the UK uh, offering graduates the opportunity to work towards well-being economy. So anything come to mind? Uh, so let me just say that so fantastic that Harry's up to study eco um, ecological economics and may many more students discover that is exactly actually the economics that equips them for the 21st century. 
the real challenge, and I, and I teach um, on a master's in environmental change and management in Oxford, and I see students come through, and by the way, of course, they're, they are paying loans for their degrees, so their education is financialized. Yeah. They, they come on our courses, they learn about regenerative economics, uh, circular economy, ecological economics. They say, yes, this is what I want to do. And then when they leave university, they have to pay off their loans. And the places that are offering them jobs sufficiently well salaried to pay off their loans want old school economics, want business as usual. So they, they actually often leave in a really existentially challenged situation, which is why Harry's very smart on asking about this. I've just set up Donut Economic Action Lab exactly to be one of the many institutions we need. We need ecosystems of new economic thinking so that people like himself can actually graduate and use the ideas they've learned and be putting them into practice because this is, let's come back to where we began. If there's going to be a crisis, which way are we going to emerge from this emergency? Yeah. And we need to build up these new ideas and harness the young generation. Thank you for calling me the next generation, Herman. I'm 50. So I look at the young people coming through and say, it's them. Let's harness that new talent coming through and make sure they get to employ the skills they've learned rather than put them in the bag and, and work with old ideas because that's the only place they can pay off their loans. Yeah, that's true. And I, the, the question about you know where he could study uh, I think you you know more than I do, but I think Leeds in uh, has has a program, and in in Europe uh, in Spain, uh, Barcelona is has a big area. Here in this country, uh, University of Vermont has a re arrangement with York and with McGill University. Their little uh, triad up there, which uh, has programs in ecological e economics, so. I think uh, there there are those possibilities, but just the way things have developed in standard economics departments. I remember when I started teaching many years ago, uh, there was you know you had courses in history of economic thought. You can hardly find a course in the history of economic thought anymore. Yeah. It used to be required. Now it's not even available as an elective. Uh, there used to be courses in comparative economic systems, capitalism, socialism, so forth. Well, now we all know that uh, there's only one alternative. There's no alternative, and it's all uh, the capitalist system. Yeah. And so then that, sorry. And, and so the, the space which was occupied by those, and then economic history has fallen out. They've just kicked that out too. Not rigorous enough. Go over to the history department. Uh, so all of those credit hours that used to be involved there, they've all gone into econometrics and, and higher theory and mathematical uh, economics. So that's, uh, that, that's um, I think, a real tragedy within the teaching of economics. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with theory. I like theory, but they, you, can, you can go overboard with it. And I'll add a last one, that there was a real division between, well, this is macroeconomics and microeconomics, and then you can go and study development economics as if it was a completely different kind of thing. And I think this virus, shocking systems, literally leaving people in many parts of the world uncertain where they're going to get their food from, their healthcare from, how they're going to provide their education. I think with, with the vulnerability of our global systems, I think it's going to help uh, Western society, high income countries, what they consider economics for their economies. It's going to open that up to the fragility to the resilience conversations, 
to the pandemic network effect conversations that actually are completely normal in low-income countries that have, have had Ebola, have had devastating impacts from financial crisis and imposed debt crises. So they right. know that shocks happen. Yeah. We need to recognize that none of us are, de are developed. I've never been to a country that has a right to call itself developed. We're all developing countries now because we need to come back within planetary boundaries or yeah. meet people's needs or do both of those at the same time. You just reminded me of a post I did on Dot Earth way back when, uh, when the Millennium Development Goals were out, saying, and one of my questions was, do the top billion need new goals too? Because when you look back at the all the the Millennium Development Goals and Sustainable Development Goals, they're still mostly focused on the undeveloped quote unquote world, and that uh, left a big chunk of the impacts uh, on the planet uh, unaddressed. There's a great question. God, a couple more great uh, points here. Peter Duran says, uh, where do externalities figure in the attention economy? Is attention a blind spot in donut economics, well-being economics? I, I mean, to, to me, that gets back to what I said about the, the fact that we have a new element of the Earth system, which is the information system. And we can see already it's, it's very hackable. Our brains, as um, Shelley, uh, Sherry Turkle at MIT and others have shown very powerfully, are distracted and, and hijacked. Uh, attention is hijacked. Um, Tristan Harris's work, um, uh, cap recapturing your, your attention. Is, is that model more important than ever, given how decisions or indecision about pandemic behavior are driven by this big swirling mass of social media and the like? Yeah, I, I guess the, um, what do they call it, the sur surveillance economy and the yeah. business of uh, information. That I think this becomes very important. Economists have dealt with this to some degree, but it, uh, information is a um, non-rival good, and uh, it doesn't fit well in the market. And we tried to make it fit in the market by artificially making it scarce and giving patent ownership to certain information and technologies. And I think this is, you see it right now with, well, now I'm, I'm, um, you know, dependent on things like Instacart for art ordering uh, food. And I just saw that Instacart, the employees went on strike and I listened to what they were saying. And uh, they had every reason to strike. I mean, they were really being ripped off by these people who have captured a, a node in the information economy so that they control everything through this bottleneck of information. Uh, and, and then they farm out on really uh, drastic terms people to work for them to, to, to fit in to supply the needs of others. Uh, so I, I think this is a this is a real problem, and it's going to going to cause further difficulties. Um, I don't know quite how to how to the attention economy makes me come back here, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. People hang out on Facebook and think they're just there to enjoy posts of their friends, cats and neighbors and dogs and what we're doing. And and actually they're siphoning off something, which is your attention and monetizing it through advertising. So again, there's always, you know, when something's free, you're the product and what is being siphoned off and that's the attention. But the power, the, 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 the impact and the way these technologies are used and the impact they have on us, of course, depend 
on what their purpose is. And that depends on how they're owned and how they're financed. So a platform like Facebook is owned and financed in a way that's there to maximize revenue and that's to capture attention in order to monetize it. But there are other platforms using the very same kind of technology. In the Netherlands, there's a platform called Habet Online. It means neighborhood online. It's a cooperatively owned platform. It's popping up neighborhood to neighborhood. It's financed and owned and governed by the communities who use it. So the point is to circulate useful, valuable information amongst those people. So it's not the platform itself. It's not the the, the means of sharing information. It's how it's owned and governed and financed yeah. that determines what it does with our attention. Exactly. What was the name of that again? Gebet Online. It's one of my few Dutch words. It's G-E-B-I-E-D. Gebet, it looks like, and if you want to say it in English, online. And it's a wonderful platform that neighborhoods mm. are using. Um, and it's like uh, community connection without the massive corporates. And it's just a lovely example that it's not, that it's, in, it's not inherent in the technology. It's how it's purposed, networked, okay. governed, owned, and financed. And that makes it all the difference. For sure. And, and uh, even within Facebook, you do see useful community driven discussion and discourse. My little tiny town here in the Hudson Valley has Phillipstown locals. And it is the place you it is the town square. It is the place you go to to see if you heard a loud noise or if the traffic is weird. Uh, um, but there the bigger system seems very broken, meaning uh, at the larger mm -hmm. scale. Um, it's kind of um, an enormous new challenge is how to how to get this system with the upside a little more dominant. I think it still is overall a positive part of our experience. And right now with, sure. with the physical distancing, I think there's some, I think some paradigms are being bro broken right now. I think the university model, exactly, just as you all said, you know, the loans that young, young, young people have endured the, the debt to go to a college and learn uh, mm -hmm. and now seeing how many resources they can uh, uh, exploit online. I, I'm hoping universities don't see this as a, just a temporary patch. You know, we're all in zoom right now right. on Streamyard here, and now we'll just go back to the norms. I don't know if you feel like that. System. Yeah. Well, my grandchildren now are all taking their university courses online and, uh, it looks like that'll go on for at least a while. So it, it may, that may change, as you say, the whole, the whole paradigm it may just be uh, a lot more efficient and a lot better. And a lot more connected globally. You know, in other words, uh, <clears throat> I, I think a lot of us in the physically distanced, uh, prosperous world really hadn't fully absorbed. Certainly I hadn't fully absorbed until a few days ago, just how profoundly uh, impossible this is in the, the poorest places in the world. I mean, I've known just on on this broadcast last Sunday, a sheep farmer for rural Massachusetts said most of her friends are not on the on the information grid, and uh, the phone is the vital way that they stay in touch. Uh, um, but when you look at the situation in India, Nepal, and then of course Sub-Saharan Africa, our awareness of these gaps in our systems globally, our awareness of Amazon burning, and uh, it, it, the the feedback mechanisms globally are changing in ways that I think are mostly positive, even with uh, Trumpian, you know, and uh, Russian and other efforts to use the system in harmful ways uh, or um, ways that you might not see as productive. I, I think we're poised for um, 
betterment to come to the foreground. Um, there's so many more questions. Some of them are pretty granular. I noticed that Brian Fitzgerald there happily posted the link. Yeah. So you can see. So this all gets archived. People can come back and great. sift for the links. Uh, I'll use Twitter to add some more uh, features like that, which is great. Uh, someone said there's something here. Maybe this is another one, a.k.a. Nextdoor. Well, I don't think community? Nextdoor is owned as a cooperative, so I, it's, it may look like it has the same function, but I think it's crucial. As with any enterprise, you need to ask, how is this owned and how is it financed? And that yeah. will tell you ultimately what it really is trying to do. That's interesting. If you don't mind, I'm going to swing through a few. I'm just going to post some of these, and if you have a quick reaction react away. And if not, we'll just uh, scroll forward a few more and then we'll have some closing thoughts. Um, um, here's uh, Melanie Valencia says, do you expect that after COVID-19 we'll just have more funding for virology vaccines or can we see a systemic change even in economics? How do we promote the latter? In other words, um, this, we kind of dealt with this a little earlier, but is there an action point um, that you can see some particular step so, next so economists week or next to, month? Economists love to talk about vaccines as an example of a public good. And that's kind of often given as one of the archetypal examples of why we need uh, to raise taxes to pay for public goods that we all will benefit from. But I think it's much more, I mean, yes, we'll, we, I think we will see more funding for vaccines but also for health system capacity, because what this virus is teaching us is that new things will emerge. And of course, you want to reduce the time it takes from it emerging to figuring out what it is to developing a vaccine and then getting that vaccine around so that people are immune and protected to it, against it. But you need a public health system in the middle. And I think one thing we're going to appreciate much more, again, is how valuable health and healthcare is and care is. Right. And it's the kind of thing that when you've got it, you just take it for granted and you just run on it. And when you lose it, it's when we lose our health and our security mm. of health that we recognize it's actually so fundamental to our well-being. And, and so I think this is at a global scale. Will I, It really should make humanity say, okay, let's scale back our impact in the whole of the living world. We need to make space for the rest of nature. Mm -hmm. And let's invest more in our health and in care for each other, because when it comes down to it, we realize that's actually what really matters. And it, talking about well-being, this is where our well-being lies. And so many people get purpose and value from being able to care for others if that work is respected. Right. And the uh, yes, this concept of one health also, which is the ecological aspect of what you mentioned, uh, that interface between humans and the other non-human systems is key. But also, as you just said, if this doesn't illustrate the power and, and Herman mentioned this earlier, the 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 value of a basic capacity of the healthcare system as a system, not necessarily for you as an individual or even as a family, but the socioeconomic impacts now of having an inadequate, inadequate healthcare system capacity are just so vivid for everybody that um, let's hope that message gets through. Herman, there's a question here that really is for you. Uh, and, uh, Anelia Paneva says, I'd like to get back to the question about the World Bank. Um, would you please elaborate on the key policy implications for the international financial institutions, World Bank, IMF, arising from changing the present growth paradigm? Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> what shall I say? Um, 
you know, I spent six years at the World Bank, and uh, there are many excellent people who work there, and I'm still friends with some of them. And um, what frustrated me mostly about the bank was that all of the capacity and excellence that they had just didn't add up. It seemed to cancel itself out. And, well, an example, um, I tried to get a a question, um, what is the best thing that the developed countries can do for the poor countries? Multiple choice question. Is it A, to grow as fast as possible so that we that the that we will be able to invest more and import more and help their expansion? Or B, is it to uh, contract or uh, to economize on ecological space for the poor countries of the world to grow into mm-hmm. up to some level of sufficiency? What should be, well, the question couldn't even be asked. I mean, it was already answered and written in stone that you had to grow more and that was going to lift all boats, you know, the rising tide. Right. And so the question it couldn't even be taken seriously. So that's what I think, one thing I think is wrong. The other thing that I, I say about the World Bank and the, and the institution, I have a real problem with globalization. I mean, these institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, they were not created to be instruments of globalization. They were created after World War II in order to help nations do things together which were in their own benefit as nations to improve trading conditions. But the locus of decision-making and uh, was fundamentally still the nation, and you just wanted to cooperate. Uh, and now, when you come in with, say, the the um, what do they call uh, the World Trade Organization, that has a very different point of view. They want to see a single global economy. They want integration. They, they don't want just internationalization. They want to integrate into one single interdependent economy across the world. And this is what bothers me. I see this with so-called free trade. Well, what does that lead to? That leads to offshoring, loss of jobs, loss of domestic control, uh, uh, then the capital mobility, increased debt, the problem then with migration, which nobody wants to talk about migration, even with even with a virus, you know, migration still an off off ramp subject you can't deal with. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to deal with that. That's part of the the globalization. It's part of the way that microbes um, transmit themselves. And so I think there are a whole lot of subjects which have been taboo, not only from the right, but also from the left, that they just don't want to talk about, that uh, we're going to have to start discussing in a rational and calm way. Uh, and, and I hope we will do that. 
I hope can so I have, too. Can I have one thing that sh uh, I hope, Herman, your number one recommendation to the World Bank is whenever they find themselves drawing a diagram of the economy, just draw a circle around it and label it the living world. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I, Kate had also encouraged me to show this uh, slide, which feels uh, like a useful way to start to close out the conversation here. And I can't tell you how many comments and questions came in that you, you actually, Kate and Herman, if you want to, you can explore them on Facebook and uh, the other platforms later. Um, but uh, so, Kate, do you want to maybe both of you offer a final thought about where we are at with this? It, to me, uh, in 2000, December 2004, I covered the uh, Indian Ocean tsunami as it was unfolding. I was given the task of writing the big, what's called a TikTok, the big story, pulling in reporting from around the world from our Times reporters uh, and putting together a chronology. And I focused it on the scientist in Seattle who was trying frantically to run a model fast enough that he could warn Sri Lanka or warn Kenya in ways that could be actionable. And and he was, the clock beat him for sure. It was a tsunami. And here we have a microbial tsunami that is, again, was predicted in some ways. The the issues, the capacities that could make it a different outcome were clear. Um, we failed in large ways that are still going to be unfolding for months to come, longer than months. So thinking about that versus uh, this uh, Mobius strip <laughs> vision, of, of um, a more dynamic, iterative learning model of with no f end point, which I think is valuable. What what would each of you say is a message to uh, either the um, young scholars who are here on the line or uh, the older folk about a way to prod us um, actionably? I'll jump in because this this right. is you've put on the screen that something I sent you earlier, and I now see that I wrote Hollings wrong. It's not Hulling; it's H O. It's Buzz Hollings' uh, diagram. Of, uh, Buzz, it's okay. my, my fault. It's Buzz Hollings' diagram of the adaptive cycle. I find I have been thinking about this picture so often in recent days. Um, it comes from systems thinking, resilience thinking, and so just to give it a quick introduction. The idea of up the side is systems that have more potential to become what they want to become. And then there's more connectedness, more networks and um, more complexity going along the bottom. Let's start down in the bottom left-hand corner, R, right? A system wants to exploit opportunity and it goes up that curve. Now, <laughs> that shape, whoop, that is the growth curve. That is exponential growth with those arrows totting up it. And we can have a long conversation about when this exploitation of human societies, of human economies began. We could go back many, many hundreds of years, but we can certainly see a measurement point around the 1950s when, and, and people have called it the great acceleration of just GDP and humanity's use of all resources and carbon emissions, da, 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 we've gone up. <laughs> so we've been accelerating up this curve. And I think the fundamental, one of the fundamental problems with mainstream economics is it believes that this curve upwards is the normal and it will continue and can and will and should continue forever. What this thinking, and I love that Herman began by saying, I think of economics as a life science. So let's take this diagram from life science, which would say, oh, by the way, economists, see this phase that we think we're always in? Um, Life scientists will tell you it's just a phase. And, and at the top, there's something called conservation, which sounds good. We could also call it um, brittleness 
uh, which which creates a fragility because oh there we're a clean one. When when we get brittle, we get less less able to adapt and cope with shocks. And I feel that. I mean, who knows where we are on this system? And there are micro ones going on and massive long system ones. Mm -hmm. But I just can't help but think since 1950, exploitation, up that at great acceleration. And then since around 2000, financial crisis, climate crisis, right. uh, extraordinary levels of inequality that make a brittleness and a fragility. And then coronavirus just feels roots kicking us around this curve. Right. And I'll be honest, yesterday I saw on Twitter from Vinay Gupta, who's just a, a very brilliant systems thinker. He tweeted, hey, everybody, you need to turn your attention over here. Two things, the World Food and Agricultural Organization saying there are new swarms of locusts forming in the Horn of Africa, right. about to decimate crops there. And some nations have begun um, putting export bans on crops. So Kazakhstan is not exporting wheat. Vietnam has put on temporary export bans on rice. <laughs> I'll be very honest, I went very, very quiet yesterday when I saw this because you think, yeah. oh, my God, here comes another one. And, and I just feel like we're going around this. And let's be very honest, some people experience this far, far worse than others. And I'm sitting here in the UK in a very privileged position that um, it's not likely to devastate my life personally. But my goodness, that is a very painful process of release. If if we are heading for something that we could call release, therein lies possibility because it shoots through to reorganization. And this brings us back to in a crisis, do we rebuild the old? Will it just take us back around this loop of mainstream capitalism that just has that extractive quality again? Or can we reorganize and can we bring in ideas like Herman's that have been waiting for decades to be the framing paradigms of our generations? And this is certainly what I'm dedicating my life's work towards is to help make those ideas the ones that sing through, that make sense, that speak to policymakers so that we can reorganize this in a way that actually create something much richer for humanity that we can thrive within the living world. Mm -hmm. And Herman, you get the last word on this. Uh, do you feel you, uh, you're in your 80s and uh, does this feel like uh, a moment of possibility for you or uh, do you still feel a little bit uh, in the wilderness? <laughs> I'm in the wilderness, but the, but the wilderness is being destroyed. So I'm coming out of it in, involuntarily, I guess. Uh, no, but I, this is encouraging, and I, and I'm encouraged by another thing. I mean, I I asked Kate a minute ago if there were any how many people in her generation were sort of like her, and I've I've discovered uh, one at least another very important in China. There's a uh, even though China is totally dedicated to growth, there are some economists in China who have become ecological economists uh, out of their own traditions and also borrowing from the West. And um, I um, at the Peking University, and they've had a conference uh, which I think has made a big step forward in 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 that world. So I think there are things that are happening, and uh, I so I'm very pleased by that, and and I'm I'm hopeful that that will uh, that that will continue. And goodness knows, I mean, we have a long tradition in economics going back to John Stuart Mill and others. There's a whole, or even before that, that that economists can can draw upon. And uh, let, let's get back to the history of economic thought and and break out of this little box of the present only 
and and look to what people have thought in the past. And it was um, a lot of it was very good. So that's kind of what I what I'm thinking. Wonderful. Well, this has been uh, a rare treat, and uh, from the looks of the comments and the uh, the viewership, um, there's thirst for more. I, I we might want to try to revisit um, in a month or two and uh, check in on how things are going. If, if you great. if you any if either of you see something cross your radar that uh, begs the being discuss renewing the discussion we should do that um i did flash there very briefly one of the promising signs i've seen is that there is this adaptive capacity concept has con there's convergence around it from the field fields uh, very different fields um as as kate was describing and then i mentioned let me see if i can just post it one more time um the um there's uh, in in folks like Susie Moser who have been involved in disaster risk reduction resilience work uh, around climate for decades. Susie's new uh, pushes on the adaptive mind. How how can we build the capacity for dealing with constant traumatic and transformative change? You know, change is changing. The the, um, the pace of everything, the dimensionality is changing um, in ways that are normal, right? But we're and we're the, we're not catching up with that at all. So what do you do in the meantime with your your mental state and how do you how do you ground yourself as you pursue these questions? Um, and I just think that the more we can talk this through and sh share and shape and get it into curricula, and by the way, not just at the higher education level, but down down lower, so kids are able to think. And that's one of the great aspects of Kate's work is it's transferable. Uh, there, there are games built around it. I, I showed on Twitter, uh, there's a tabletop game you can play, the donut economics game. And you're both, uh, you know, carrying it on a tradition of examining norms and pushing forward toward um, a new world that will always be a work in progress. So yeah. thanks so much for joining me uh, on this to sustain what broadcast. I, I call it sustain what, because even though the word sustainability is in the name of my program here, I, I think you have to start always with the question, sustain what? Hey, that's very good. I, I really like sustain what, I mean, sustainability, those abstract nouns are hard to pin down, right. but you've, you've gone all the way to a transitive verb, you know, <laughs> sustain, sustain something else, you know, and it's, right. The ecosystem that sustains the economy and and i think your work makes that clear so thank you for that well thank you herman it's wonderful to visit with you stay safe there um nursing homes are kind of the, the front line right now sadly and yeah. um retirement communities and and kate keep at, keep up the good work um, yeah, thanks so much this has been huge privilege and i would absolutely love to come back and have a conversation some month's time we we will all see things and know things and think things we can't quite imagine right now there you go. Thank you all. And thanks for uh, tuning in, everybody. Um, I'll be following up, I'm sure Kate will, on Twitter and uh, a little bit on Facebook, much more on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>